0: Okay, so it is a joy and a delight to welcome you to Stones Hill Community Church this morning. What a thrill. Uh, we're starting just a little earlier than we normally do, so thank you so much for the extra effort in getting out and, and about and here. Many of you are here already um, with breakfast, and thank you so much to the food services team, making sure that breakfast is here and ready. And so, if you're tuning in online, we welcome you as well. We're so glad that you've joined us this morning. And uh, if you're at home and having breakfast, that's awesome. But if you uh, maybe forgot about breakfast this morning, and you would like to come out and get a free breakfast, an excellent breakfast, and also hear a very powerful set of speakers, uh, then we would like to invite you to come on out, especially if you're close by. Uh, So, we're in for an exciting day. We've got four presentations scheduled, and the way we'll, we'll uh, flow this morning is that um, we'll do this first presentation. Brent and Stacy will come and share with you, and then after the first presentation, um, we'll dismiss you at 845 uh, for the AIG participants, and they can, you can go to your classes like you normally do, and then uh, we'll, we'll continue to stream. We'll have the second session. And uh, that'll be streamed, so anything that you miss in the second session because you're in AIG, no problem. You can just back up and watch it later another time. And then we'll wrap up that session with a Q&A. So uh, if you're not an AIG participant, um, just stay right in here for the second presentation. Uh, and then um, we'll have our normal morning worship service at 10. And then Brent and Stacy will have the sermon time in the morning worship service. And then I'm happy to also report to you that... Uh, John Wakeman and um, Brad and others have been smoking barbecue for the last couple of days. And that is on the menu for lunch following the worship service. And so uh, a very special and tasty lunch is provided for you. And so be sure to stay for that. And then Brent will come back and share a a fourth and final presentation with you. Uh, How many of you have ever had to replace a door in your home or place of business. Anybody? Yeah. So we know that sometimes you need to replace a door. How many of you have tried to open a new door with an old set of keys? Anybody like that? Yeah. Doesn't work, does it? A brand new door, but those old keys don't work. Here's the deal. I firmly believe this morning that God's got some brand new doors for each of you to walk through and it's gonna require a new set of keys. You can't get through a new door with old keys. And I'm convinced this morning that Brent and Stacy have brought a new set of keys for you to open the new doors that God has to place in front of you this morning. Now, I want you to bear that in mind and wish you'd be so kind would you give a Stone Seal welcome to Brent and Stacy Henderson? Yes. Such a delight to have these guys. I so enjoyed talking to them yesterday, and there'll be more information about the, inf- about the book table and things that um, they have made available for you. But uh, let's tune in right away because you never know when God's going to give you that brand new set of keys.
1: Good morning, everybody. Let's just start with a word of prayer if we could. God, thank you for a new morning. I saw that sun come up over the fields, and it was amazing. New life, and it comes from you. So this morning, these new keys that we're talking about, this, this new life in Christ, Lord, help us to see the aha moments, to be able to unlock that new sunrise that you're going to be bringing up in our hearts and minds this morning, that we can know you better, that we can take you in, that we can feel you warmth, that we can see your light. Thank you for getting us through all the technical stuff that was happening right before. That always lets me know the enemy is at work, and Jesus always wins. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, well, this is my beautiful wife, Stacy. She gets to come with me this weekend, so you can say hi to Stacy. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. We were going to be starting off this morning in a different way, and I changed it a couple of days ago. So one of the things we're going to talk about is the lies um, that we all buy into. And before I start walking into this morning, you can, you can sit down for a couple minutes. I'll just blab here. Um, I get to travel a lot, and one of the things that I love to do when I'm traveling, whether it was in music or whether it was in the outdoor industry, was the stories that we have when we're on the road. And we were going, I think it was to Kansas, and we had a like an all-night drive. There was three of us in the vehicle. Now the one guy, his name was Don. Don has to go to the bathroom every 20 minutes. He drinks Diet Coke nonstop. So we had a long I finally said, Don, I said, listen. I said, we can't keep stopping. I said, you're going to have to figure this out. We, I hadn't even said that to him, and he's got to go to the bathroom. We, it's like 11 o'clock. We see this McDonald's. We go turning in. He takes off running, and we're all kind of laughing at him. So we get out, my buddy and I, we take our time, walk in, go into the bathroom, you know, do our business, wash our hands. But I'm, I'm realizing, where's, where's Don? I didn't see him. And I hope you see where this is going. You know how, like at McDonald's, when you walk back, like there's women's on one side, men's on the other, kind of facing each other. Yeah. And so I come walking out, and I open the door, and here comes the door. The women's open up, and there was this beautiful blonde woman coming out. Her face is beet red. She's covering her face with her hands, laughing hysterically. And right behind her comes Don. And he looks at me. He's, he's busted. I said, "What are you doing in the women's bathroom?" He goes, you're never going to believe this. I said, what happened? He goes, he says, I wasn't looking for urinal. He says, my stomach was really upset. So I was looking for a stall. He says, I ran right to the first stall that I could find. He said, I sit down, and the next thing I know, I see someone's come in, and I can see their tennis shoes. He goes, I thought they were yours. He says, I'm making all kinds of noise. He goes, and you're not laughing. He said, so I take my hands, and I'm making even more noise, and you're still not laughing he goes, and so now I'm taking toilet paper off the roll, and I'm throwing it over the top. And he goes, and you're still not laughing. And I come walking out, and here's this woman washing her hands. And he goes, no. He's like, And that's how I met my wife. Okay, that part's not true. But the rest of the story was. But the lies that we all buy into is something that I want to start off with this morning. Because some of the, the format, the roadmap we're going to have today is we're going to be talking about who we are in Christ, because that really is a foundation. Because when we understand, when a man knows, a woman knows who we are in Christ, that we're created in the image of the living God, when we're no longer held captive by the opinions of others or care whether we live or die, we are now extremely dangerous, dangerous for good. Because we're no longer held back by like things with the enemy attacking the sound this morning. Even if that would have all happened, nothing would have stopped the word of God. We would still go on, right? So that's one thing to remember this morning we're going to talk about. But where are these lies that we buy into that make us feel less than? You know, I don't have as much money as this person. I don't look like this person. I don't have their title, all these things. This is what we call the big lie. And the big lie simply says this, that my performance plus others' opinions equals my self-worth, which is a lie from the pit of hell. Never buy into this. But let me kind of give you a little bit of a window, maybe into some of my background to help you understand where the enemy hit me in the past and can still hit me even this morning. I mean, he can, he can find his way in. So I was in music for a lot of years um, back in the 80s and 90s and touring with a lot of different, different music artists that were out there. And what's funny is when I graduated from high school, I was the same height that I am now. And I weigh 210. I was 118 pounds. I mean, I was, if I turned sideways and stuck my tongue, I looked like a zipper. I was really skinny. And so I, I hated myself back then. So I got into music, found out that I could actually do music pretty well, begin to tour with some of the big names, Stevens, Curtis, Ch- Stephen Curtis Chapman and Sandy Patty, you know, a bunch of different things. And I, when I got out there, I began to feel like a somebody because I didn't like who I was in the shell that I was in. And as long as I was on one of these tours, I felt like a somebody. But when tour was over and the bus would come back home and I'd go back and be changing poopy diapers and washing dishes and cleaning house, I began to feel like an anybody. And then another tour would come up and I'd feel like a somebody again because you're out there in front of the lights and people knew your name and they wanted your autograph. And all this junk that the enemy does that says, that's your identity right there. And so he builds this false self, the poser within us. And I, and I know in, in the past, you know, even when I was sharing with you, I intentionally told you some of the names that I went with because I want you to see how easy it is to take something else to get your worth and value from. And that was something that I could be guilty of for a long time, that name dropping. Oh, maybe they'll think I have more worth and value if they knew who I toured with, or they knew the songs that I had recorded, or all these things. So that's where the enemy can hit us. And again, remember, the big lie says that my performance plus others' opinions equals my self-worth. So when I was out there, I felt like a somebody. When I got home, I felt like an anybody. But then all of a sudden, when I'd be back home and tour was all done with, I began to feel like a nobody because my identity was rooted in my performance and other people's opinions. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think we, we can all do that. Let me. What if you always felt like a nobody? Yeah, that's, nothing to say. I was just pulling that up for you. This is the one thing we've talked about. She's like, you know, you talk about your past But that wasn't her story. That wasn't Stacy's story. Sure about that. It's coming, not yet. Watch the screens. We were thinking there was a video back here, and they said that that wasn't working, so we have to look at the screens. So I can go there if you want to. Let me see what we got here. How many of you saw this movie? How many of you does that bring up? Could be not good memories. Yeah.
2: Much like Jenny, I, I grew up with a pretty horrific childhood and um, it's very it resonates with me deeply, so I just wanted to share it with you through video if you could bring that up.
1: This is one of the mm-hmm. things that Stacy always says is what well, a child wait, go wait. ahead, sorry, I was gonna intro that slide real quick. if you can just go back to it? Maybe I can go back to it, I'm not sure. Nope. There we go. One of the things that we talk about a lot is that what a child almost always knows about God comes through the earthly father. And as you watch this video, I want you to really listen closely to Stacy's life and the lack of that father figure and, and a lot of other things in her life. And I think it will really relate um, to, uh, to a lot of you. Go ahead and do that video now. Thanks.
2: Um, I don't have any pleasant memories with my mom. Um, the things I was exposed to under her watch were horrific. Um, I can remember how dirty our house was, where there was, it was littered with dog feces and cockroaches, and it was very, very dark. Which w- would make sense because my whole world was dark. Um, I can remember being so hungry with nothing in the refrigerator to eat except for her drink of choice, which was vodka. Um, I can remember um, her not coming home because she would just forget, and on those times that she did come home, I would be in her bedroom on the floor watching and hearing moans coming from my mother, which at the time I thought she was being hurt, which later I now know was not her being hurt. She told me I was dreaming, um, so I just, I, I just went back to bed because she told me I was dreaming, but it happened every night, and it was a new face every night, um, which later would haunt me into adulthood. I was I was pretty much the poster child of abandonment and neglect. It was when I was eight years old when my uncle, her brother, came to the house to pick my two sisters and I up for the funeral of my grandmother's mo- mother, and um, he witnessed firsthand the filth and neglect that we were living in. So he told my mom that. Um, he was going to take us home with him to Virginia for a couple weeks to give her a chance to get her act together. And um, while we were gone, she sold all of our belongings and left a note with my grandparents that um, when we came home, we were going to have to go to the Bronnenberg Children's Home, which then was an orphanage home. Um, my grandparents went to court and got guardianship for a year and um, it ended up being until each one of us was 18 years old. There was a movie that came out um, I don't know what year it was but um, I could relate to it very much from one of the scenes when well the movie was Forrest Gump I guess I should say that part Um, and there was a scene where Jenny threw rocks at her childhood home because of all the horrible memories she had from it, and every time I go by this house where my mother abandoned me on Mounds Road, it's exactly what I want to do. But I want to throw boulders. I want to. I just. I just want to throw it to hell. <laughs> it's amazing how these scars carried with me clear into adulthood when I was. Um, 18. I was five days away from graduating high school and I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, My mom gave me up when I was eight. I didn't have a dad. My grandparents, even though they rescued me, my grandmother specifically, God rest her soul, would always remind us that we weren't wanted by saying things like I shouldn't be raising you kind of thing. Um, So anyway, I'm standing in my kitchen and I go to the medicine cabinet. And I just begin looking for pill bottles that say zero refill because I'm hoping that it's gonna be strong enough to do the trick. I just begin popping them and popping them and popping them. My little sister saw me. I just told her I had a headache and I was taking some Tylenol. Um, I was then taken to the emergency room a little while later. I ended up in critical care that night. I did almost die. And I had a friend whose mom came and visited me and whispered in my ear, If you succeed, you're going to hell. And that was like Satan speaking to me i laid there so lifeless and that's all i kept thinking about that i was going to go to hell almost everything a child knows about god comes from their earthly father and i didn't have one so i didn't believe he was real Um, my mom would tell me a name who my father was and i held that name little treasure box. I would always ask questions about him. She would not just tell me that he didn't want me. And when she told him she was pregnant with me, he split. I work at a local hospital and when I was 27 years old, this name sat down at my desk and I was paralyzed. I could not speak to him. I finally had to get up and walk away. I ran into my boss who saw me obviously in hysterics and I gave her a brief story as to what had happened and she's the one that encouraged me to go back and confront him. And all I did was say, I mentioned my mother's name, I said, do you know this woman? And he didn't hesitate, he said, yes I do. And I said the phrase I thought I would never ever say, I think I'm your daughter. So we're standing in the hallway in my office and he pulled me into him like as if he was being handed a newborn baby. I'm so sorry. He held me for what seemed like an eternity. It felt so safe and so good. We exchanged phone numbers and we communicated for a couple weeks until I finally got the courage to ask him why he didn't want me. And he said, it wasn't that at all. He said that when my mother came to him and said she was pregnant, all he said to her was, how can you be sure it's mine? And so he waited and waited and waited all these you know all my earlier years for her to come at him with paternity or child support and that was just the last he ever heard from her so he volunteered to have dna testing done and so we met at the indiana blood center down here on scatterfield and um, six weeks later the envelope arrived and it revealed that there was zero match that he could be my father And so that little name that I kept in my own little treasure box was gone. I didn't know anything. So that made me run from God even more. I was so angry. Um, A few years later, let me back up when I approached my mom about this All she could say to me was, I thought he was. She wouldn't give me any more answers. She wouldn't talk to me about it. A few years later, I have my middle daughter at the eye doctor, and um, there's a spot on the back of her eye that don't ask me how, but is somehow connected to colon cancer. And the eye doctor told me that later in life, she could develop colon cancer, and it's genetically linked to the maternal grandfather. So that began my quest again. It was no longer about me, it was about my baby girl. (laughs) So I went to my mom again, thinking that if it's about her grandchild, it would make some kind of a difference, and it wouldn't, it didn't. So with the advice of a friend, I decided to take it to Facebook. I had a picture of me holding up a sign. I had her name on it, the year she graduated, and um, if they had any information to please contact me. And the amount of messages I received made me feel dirty because all these hundreds of messages Basically, told me that my mother was the town tramp. So I felt very unclean and dirty and even more worthless. So, in this lifelong quest of trying to find my father, I began finding my worth and value in men. I was hungry for their attention. I thought I I was trash, so I let them treat me like trash. Um, My whole life, it was like I was living in this black hole, unwanted, unloved, dirty, sin. Until a few months ago, I found God, just a few months ago at 37 years old, and I've been baptized twice. I found God in a brand new way. So I decided to create this blog called woman unveiled because God unveiled to me that I can use my story and invite women along to walk with me in my own healing and maybe begin healing of their own. Um, And that's my roar story.
1: A lot has happened. Since that video, I know I'm sitting here looking at the tears in your eyes, and I'm trying not to cry. And I'm looking out, and I'm seeing some people out there wiping their tears away. What a child almost always knows about God comes through their earthly father, and you know, we both have our stories. When God brought us together, with my story and her story, and really getting to know her story. Um, It's been a beautiful thing, the way God restores and redeems.
2: Can I say something?
1: Yeah, I was going to set you up with that, but yeah. Um,
2: What I don't talk about in that video is forgiveness. And before the service started, you talked about the door and the new keys and so forth. And and I finally um, came to a spot in my life where I needed to go through that door. I think so many of us have a hard time of forgiving because we think that's letting them off the hook or, or so forth. And um, so I, s- I sent my mom a letter letting her know that I had forgiven her. But with that said, I have extremely strong boundaries. I, I don't have a relationship with her. I, I still can't to this day, but I have forgiven her um, because the more I matured in my faith, the more I realized that she was buying into her own lies. And for whatever reason, her own story played a pretty Im- big impact on her own choices. And so, I, you know, forgiveness has released me.
1: Yeah, and boundaries aren't something that we put around someone else. Boundaries are something that we put around us. And it's not that there hasn't been attempts to reach out and to see, but until choices begin to become different choices, you know, it's just, it's just um, wise. And you know, what's really amazing though was, I don't know, maybe it was a couple of years after we had gotten married and I was, we were talking and I said, so you've given up the search? And she says, I've, I've turned over every rock. I don't know what else to do
2: that i thought of except one thing which why it never crossed my mind or never crossed anybody else's to suggest was do ancestry dna
1: and that's exactly (laughs) so for christmas i don't know how many years ago i got her this this test kit and we we thought well, you thought you had found him at first actually up in this part of the state and only to find out it wasn't him and then someone saw something that she was posting about this who happened to be
2: Away and so forth and we got the results back and I don't know if you've ever done ancestry DNA, but it's like rocket science. Like you have to match everything and yeah. it was very overwhelming and I tried to do it on my own and like he said we thought we found him up here in northern Indiana and it turned out that it wasn't him. So I joined this group on Facebook and it was a DNA um match Facebook group, I don't know, but somebody out in California saw my story and um, she's actually a private investigator by career, but in this little group, she called herself a search angel and she offered to take over my case and it took her about three months before she had it all squared away and figured out and um, she was able to find a sister. And connected the two of us. And once I saw pictures of this other girl, I was like, come on. There's no way. Like, we, like, nothing alike. And I was very skeptical. But we talked, and um, she actually had told me that I had another sister that lived down in Florida. This one lives up in Maryland. And um, so she told the one that lives in Florida about me, and she she was very skittish about it, whereas this other one was, oh my gosh, I had a feeling there was another one of us out there somewhere. but um, So she finally convinced the one that lives in Florida to do the DNA testing as well, just to confirm it all, and so reluctantly she did, and it turns out that our matches came back even stronger than the one that lives in Maryland. And we look, we look
1: pretty much. So we found, I mean, let me see if I can get this to, there's her dad. Do you see the resemblance? I see it in the cheeks, but here's what's really funny. Let me show you the picture that we got back of her sister. And that's how I went, no, this is an absolute match. That's Stacy on the, on the left and that's her sister on the right. Is that incredible? But through all this stuff, what we talked about, you know what, a child almost always knows about God, it comes through their earthly father. And she didn't have an earthly father. And there was many times that it would would drive you to, you know, just to tears and to to other places. And there was a verse, it says, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. And when she was talking about finding God and, and us being able to get together, you know, sometimes I would be tempted to just want to fix her. Not, I don't mean that like I was thinking that way at the time, but I just was like I, I wanted to get her healed, right? So I would throw out all these scriptural prescriptions and like, why aren't you just understanding this? Why can't you just renew your mind and apply this to your life? Well, it just doesn't work that way. When you have childhood scars that are that deep, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very long healing process. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. So
2: back to my dad, I did find him. Turns out he had been, uh, he'd passed away 10 years prior to me finding all this out, so I never did get to meeting. Um, but I've been given videos of him, so I know what his voice sounds like, and obviously pictures, so that part's been pretty neat.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the, our identity, the stuff that we pull our identity from, it doesn't just happen in, in adulthood or in our teen years. It starts at the very beginning. How many of you, when you were in school, remembered, now I've said my ABCs. Now, the way I learned it, it wasn't next time won't you sing with me. It was tell me what you think of me. Is that how you learned it too? Now I've said my ABCs, tell me what you think of me. I can remember I was in the hospital my first grade year, and I missed half of the year. didn't go to kindergarten back then. And I went, came back and being put up front to have to do all these different performance things that the other kids have been doing for the last four or five months that I was behind on and I felt like I wasn't good enough. So you can see, even at a very early age, you know, when you don't have a mother or a father or something happens in this that, that puts you behind or whatever it looks like, it could be even be physically, you didn't grow as quickly as someone else. From the very early age, we're geared to perform for our self worth. <laughs> And it continues right up to now. Well, I'm not making as much money as they are. I don't drive what they drive. I don't look, you know, whatever. But the enemy wants you to really believe in the big lie that your performance plus others' opinions equals your self-worth, which is absolutely uh, a lie from the pit of hell. This says, from our earliest memories, the enemy has infected us with plenty of shame, forging lies from our earliest cognitive moments to keep us on the hamster wheel of performance. And we all know what snakes do to hamsters. All right? So this is something that we have been talking about recently. Whatever names you owns you. Because if it names you, that's where you're getting your worth and value from. You know, what are some of the things that, that, that name us? You know, how old I am. I'm not 30 anymore. I'm not 18 anymore, whatever. Um, fame. Well, I never got my... 30 seconds of fame or whatever. We look at these, how we look, our grades, houses, job title, education, popularity, other people, athletic ability. You know, the car we drive, likes on social media. Oh, I just got a like. I didn't get a love. Seriously? Your relationship status. How many feel like they're less than because they went through the pain of a divorce? You know, the beautiful thing is this. No matter who we are, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, God's love never leaves you. No matter what your sin is, he says, I've taken your sin and I've cast it as far as the east from the west. And he says, I remember it no more. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, I've known these verses for a long time, but isn't isn't it amazing how the aha moments that happen... Usually they happen when we're going through a trial in life. And then all of a sudden, God reveals these things like a healing bomb. It begins to transform us and draw us closer to him. Here's something to think about. Grace always leads to obedience. Or it's not grace. It's something else. People go, oh, too much grace. Then you don't understand grace. When you have been transformed through something, a difficult circumstance, and you realize that you were given Forgiveness and healing and mercy, it will transform me like nothing else. You know, what we're doing this morning is we're going to be setting the stage for each one of these segments. You know, what we're we're going through now with all of this is really getting ready, setting the table, so to speak. There's going to be four courses of meals that we're going to be eating today. And the first one is just kind of letting you know a little bit about our story as we move into then how do you get through this stuff? And as we move through it and then show where the enemy's playbook is, how he attacks us, and then finally at the end of the day, then how do we create a safe place for someone else who's struggling? But first, we have to go through the crucible. We were talking about this yesterday. We have to be able to pass through it. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, ruthlessly eliminate any attempt to make something of yourself. That's such a powerful statement because now all of a sudden, all that time and effort, we begin to try to form our own identity. Hey, what time is this? Just so I know. And what time is this one done? Okay, I've got three minutes. Great. So let me just kind of move into this, and then we'll just kind of train. Whatever we don't get done with this, and we just move into the next session. So I would come in to the closet sometimes. I couldn't find Stacy in the house, and she would be in there. And I'd find her curled up in the fetal position early in our marriage. Why were you you in there? Weird way. Because...
2: Something would happen that would trigger thoughts of my past and so my closet was my one safe place where I could, you know, control the environment, control the amount of hurt that I was experiencing.
1: And that's hard for guys because we're fixtures, right? We just want to come in and, and if it doesn't turn out like we're the hero in the story, you know, we can all, all get defensive or get upset because well, I did everything I could. It's not about you. And it's not about fixing, it's usually about listening. Most of the time, if people can process in a safe place, the Holy Holy Spirit will lead them to where they need to find that truth. We just have to be patient and realize our role is, a lot of times, just to be there. She needed someone to stick around, not to abandon. Does that make sense? Yeah. And there's two questions that I put up here. One says, what does that mean to you if you can be invisible? What did that mean to you if you could be invisible?
2: It just means that I could control my environment and could control others from
1: hurting me. And then the next question says, what does that mean about you if you feel like you needed to be invisible? That I'm unworthy. Yeah, that I'm not good enough. That's the big lie. The enemy wants us to feel like we are not good enough because if he can get us there, he can manipulate us in everything we do. We're no longer effective. Like I talked about, being dangerous for good. When he can get in and convince you that you're not good enough because you're getting your worth and value from everything else except from the one place, which we're going to talk about in the next session, he's got you. So anyhow, I think we're just about at that minute time. Let me see if there's one more thing I had up here. Yeah, let me say this real quick before we we stop this session. You know, a lot of us, we struggle. We we have conviction or we feel condemnation. And there's a huge difference in our life, and it's really important as we're going to be moving into identity next session session to understand something. God doesn't condemn us. We just talked about Romans 8.1. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the work of the enemy. But there's a huge difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction's a beautiful thing. It really is. It cleans us up. We become healthy and whole and forgiven. Conviction is about what God wants. Condemnation is about what the enemy wants. One frees us and invites us to walk in the light but the other one enslaves us and keeps us hiding in the darkness. And we'll finish up with this. When you're a believer in Christ and you believe in the, the, the Testament, the New Testament with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, he loves us no matter what he went to the cross to die for all of our sins. And whenever we try to lean on our own works to be good enough, to try to get in a right standing with God, we've gone the wrong direction. That's why Jesus came. And we find ourselves as a believer, rather than embracing Christ and His grace and His love, we go back to holding hands with the law, with works. And what does the Bible say about it? It says, our righteousness is as filthy rags. God, thank you so much for this first session this morning, just kind of setting the stage for all of our stories, for all of us do have a story. But now, help us to find our true identity in this next session, and then how do we break free by the renewing of our mind as we keep on moving this morning? Thank you for this time together, in Jesus' name.
0: Incredible, yes. Yes. Thank you so much for your transparency. You've been such an incredible ministry already this morning and your story. Thank you so much. And then I would like to say um, we're just gonna transition to Answers in Genesis um, discussion groups. And then um, uh, what we will do is reconvene in here at 10 o'clock um, for the AIG group, uh, 10 o'clock for the service. But the second session is gonna be ongoing. So we'll just take a couple, a couple of minutes and then we're gonna restart the second session and deal a little more with the identity thing. Did you notice how much of a craving we have for our fathers, mothers and our fathers it's there. It's in us. And, uh, and I'm so glad to hear uh, Brent and Stacy talking about this because it is he who can stamp us, with, stamp us with an identity and that we always take with us. That's not dependent on some s- circumstantial thing. So you, it's who you are in Christ. You've been stamped. You belong to him. Now live in light of that new identity. Amen. Okay. You're dismissed, AIG group. Everybody else, just hang tight. We're going to be re- relaunching here for just a moment.